we're back in Romans 9, but actually we're really not so much in Romans 9 tonight as we are covering somewhat of a, a it's not a tangential issue by any stretch, it's at the, it's at the heart of the matter, but it's not in the text is, is all I'm saying. Um, th- this discussion that we're going to have tonight and had last week has, um, has arisen <clears throat> as, we, um, as, we're, as we're going through the text and we arrive at um, verse 11 that contains a word that um, pretty much raises a great deal of emotion among many. It is the word election. And um, you will notice that it's contained in the middle of verse 11. Uh, we tried to deal last week with verses 9, 10, and 11. And as a result of that word appearing there, um, I want to address something else tonight. And it has to do with, the, with a question that, that, that frequently comes up when, um, when this passage or that word appears. And it has to do with the whole issue of free will. So, whereas tonight we're not looking at the text, we're looking at an issue that has been spun off by the text. So, you don't so much have to concentrate on the, the words of the text tonight. We'll try to do that more, more um, specifically next week when we get back really to the text. But tonight, I want to address the issue of, um, that seems to come up very often in the, in the whole discussion, and that is... Um, what about free will? Now, let me say a couple of three things by way of introduction, and then we'll kind of jump in. First of all, just, just on a personal note, I hate the term. The term free will. I hate the term. Um, now, it, for me, now, this may not be true in anybody else in the room, but for me, it comes with a lot of baggage. Um, it it kind of smacks of, of defiance and rebellion. I have my free will. That, that's what, it, that's what it kind of uh, prompts in me. And that may not be true of you, but all I'm trying to tell you is uh, I don't even use the term. I, I try to avoid that term, and I talk about the term moral responsibility. Now, if I say that tonight, you'll know that uh, that's my uh, substitute word for the other word, that, and, and I'll use it too, but it just, it just, it just makes my skin crawl. Um, the other thing, or, this, or second introductory comment, you need to know this, that other parts of the world don't have nearly the amount of trouble over the issue of God's sovereignty as do um, southern evangelicals. Now, I'm not saying that they don't have any problems, but I'm saying they don't have the kind of passionate resistance um, as you find uh, here in the South among evangelicals. Uh, for instance, in India, um, it, it, you know, they, they, don't, they don't respond the same way that Southern evangelicals, re, the, the way they respond. Uh, Budapest, um, you, you don't see the same kind of response. Czech Republic, even, even in, in New York City, you don't, you don't have the same kind of immediate opposition as you find so endemic to the South. Just, just for your information. Uh, a third, um, just introductory comment. And then we'll, we'll get going. But um, this month's edition of Science Times um, is a magazine that, you know, anybody can get a hold of. You can get it uh, on the Internet. Um, in this month's uh, edition, there was an article in there 
and the article was entitled, Do We Have Free Will? in the, the Science Times magazine. And I, I want you to know that evolutionary biology answers the question with an emphatic no. Um, what, what evolutionists are saying is that you and I are just the product of natural selection, which determines everything about us. And consequently, the reason um, that I choose that the, the way I do is because of my hard wiring. Um, and that, that's, the, that's the biological argument. Now, um, as you know, I haven't ever thought that evolutionary biology has gotten anything right. Um, I think they get everything wrong. So, but my, my point is, if you're an evolutionist, you might want to consider giving that up if you want to hold on to this issue of free will, because they emphatically suggest that you have none. Now, that's a biological argument, which means nothing to me, but I thought it might be interesting to you. Now, having said that by way of introduction, let me kind of frame the debate for you, um, and then we'll, we'll uh, address it from there. Um, the debate sounds something like this, or goes something like this, um, that, God, that some make God out to be doing all of these things that he does, despite our choices. And if that is the case, who cares how you live? Who cares um, um, what you choose? Because if that's true, then you have been turned into an automaton. I think that's right, automaton. An automaton. Uh, a word that you might better recognize as robot. Um, God ordering all the things despite our choices means that it doesn't make any difference what you choose. Uh, it doesn't matter how you live because he's already ordered it all and you're just an automaton, a robot. Now, that's, that's pretty much the argument or the argument of offense. Now, guys, uh, having said that, the um, the mistake, or at least um, at one of the mistakes, I'm sure there's several, but um, one of the mistakes in this whole discussion is that we tend to be either-or thinkers. Now, now, guys, listen to that because that's huge, and 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 we'll um, let me just drop. We tend to be either-or. Thinkers, and by that I mean this. Either we have free will or everything is determined. Either or. Uh, uh, said another way, um, either we are responsible for our choices um, and, and our choices really matter and our future is open or... We are fixed and our choices don't matter. Those are the two options in, in, uh, in the debate that is governed by people who think either or. I'm saying to you, ladies and gentlemen, that the Bible takes you in a different direction. Um, the Bible always teaches both.
Um, or you could say it, the Bible always teaches this and that. Um, you're free, and your choices do matter, and your future is open, and everything about your choices are, are working, uh, they're working in such a way that they are according to and carrying out and bringing about the plan of God. It is not that God simply knows what you will, what you will choose, but that what you choose fits into the plan that He wants. Now, that, my, my point is this, guys. In this debate, this, this very hotly contested debate, I would, I would suggest to you that the fundamental mistake is made by either or thinking. When the Bible takes you in a, in a different way to a both and conclusion. And I want you to know that the examples are everywhere in this book. And that's what I want to spend my time showing you. I want to show you both and. And, um, and then, hopefully, it will enable you to get beyond your either-or um, predisposition. Okay? So, I hope you got your Bibles, and I hope you can lick your fingers. And I hope the fingers are clean, because we have a lot to, to look at. Are you ready? Let's start. I'm going to try to start in the front and kind of go to the back. Let's start in the book of Exodus, would you? Let's start in Exodus chapter 8. Okay, um, remember what I'm trying to tell you. I'm trying to overturn either or and replace it with both and. All right, here we go. Exodus chapter 8, verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now, you know this story. This is in the midst of all the plagues, and Moses is in there. And, and, uh, but when, they, when one of the plagues stopped, it says, Moses, I mean, Pharaoh saw that there was respite, and he hardened his heart. Okay, keep your finger right there and turn over to chapter 10. Exodus 10. Exodus chapter 10, verse 20. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people go. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I could spend the rest of your evening just showing you examples in the book of Exodus of that very point. Now, tell me this. On, on, on the basis of those two verses, 8, 15... And uh, 10.20, who is responsible for the hardening of Pharaoh's heart? Uh, is it God or is it Pharaoh? Or is it both? Um, that's, that's just example number one, where you see... Pharaoh being assigned the responsibility, and a chapter later you see God being assigned the same responsibility for the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Okay? That's the first example. Let's try the second one. Let's go to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy 10. I'm in verse 16. 
Deuteronomy 10.16, um, which says, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. You see it? That's 10.16. Keep your finger there and go over with me to the same book, chapter 30. Once you've found chapter 30, let me read 10 to you again. 10.16 says, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. Chapter 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. Now tell me, ladies and gentlemen, once again, who is responsible for the circumcising of the flesh of your stony heart? Well, it says over here, you better go get that done. That is in, uh, in chapter 10, verse 16. But then it says over here in chapter 30, verse 6, that God does that. So, is it you or is it God? Or perhaps is it both? Again, ladies and gentlemen, I'm trying to show you that your either-or thinking doesn't square with how the Bible handles these issues. It teaches both. How about another one? Well, actually, I've got about eight. Um, and I could, I could show you 25, but we only have time. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel 18. Um... Ezekiel 18, verse 31, says this. Cast away all of your transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. You see it? Keep your finger there and go to chapter, same book, chapter 20, excuse me, chapter 36, Ezekiel 36. It says over here in 18, make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. So who is being told to do that? Well, obviously I am, or you are. Uh, look at chapter 36, verse 26 says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. So tell me once again, ladies and gentlemen, who is it that is going to get a new heart for you? You or God? Or perhaps, could our option be not either or, but both? Um... Uh, I tell you what, we, we did skip one. Let's go back a little bit and go to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs 16, oh gosh. Proverbs 16, verse 1. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Well, let me just read verse 9 in that same chapter. It says the same thing. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes steps. Now, guys, those plans that you have are your plans. But the answer, the result, is all God's. By the way, in that same chapter, look with me at uh, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap. By the way, does anybody know what the lot is? I mean, they do it in, uh, they do it in Acts chapter 1. Remember where they were trying to replace Judas? They do it in, in Acts chapter 1, and they cast lots. It's like unto throwing dice. Okay? So it says, verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Now think about this, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, in Acts chapter 1, they're trying to replace Judas, and they're going to do it by lot. And yet, and yet, if you'll go read Acts chapter 1, the, the apostles gathered and prayed fervently over that decision. 
You see, one of the things that people who are who are object to the sovereignty of God is they're saying, well, okay, if God plans everything, why pray? Well, you know, guys, the apostles didn't seem to have that problem. They understood that the result is uh, you throw the dice, and, and, uh, but the, every decision is from the Lord that he even controls the, 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 uh, the casting of the throwing of the dice. But it didn't stop them from praying. They thought it was very important that they prayed. All right, let's go to the New Testament. Uh, let's go to Matthew 26. I love this one. Well, actually, it's not my favorite, but I love it nonetheless. Um, um, Matthew 26, uh, verses 1 through 5. Well, I've got to read these. When Jesus had finished all these things, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. How did he know that? Well, it was because God had uh, ordained that it, uh, he was going to be crucified. But look at verse 3. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name is Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. And they said, not during the feast, lest there be any uproar among the people. So what are they doing? They're meeting, they're plotting, they're planning, they're scheming. And all the while, their meetings, their plottings, their schemings is carrying out I mean, God's plan is being worked out not despite their choices, but through them. You see that? Well, you don't see it there. I bet you can see it here. Same chapter. It's about Judas. Same chapter, verses 24 and 25. Um, Jesus says, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You said it. Now, guys, do you see that? Look, look what he says. The Son of Man is about, to be, is about to go as it is written of him to carry out every piece of predictive prophecy about Jesus that was written in the Old. It's about to happen just as it was written. But, woe to that man by whom I'm going to be betrayed. Now tell me, what is it that Judas is doing when he betrays him? Oh, he's simply carrying out those uh, predictive prophecies that were all included in the Scriptures. But having done so does not render him guiltless. He still is guilty for that choice of betraying the Son of Man. And that betrayal was something that was planned and operated and carried out or, or uh, put in place by God. In fact, the scripture says that Jesus was crucified before the foundations of the earth. <clears throat> okay. Um, how about um, one more? Um, yeah, one more. Um, Philippians chapter 2. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For or because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his own good pleasure. There's a text that says, work it out. And then the very next verse says, 
Because it's God who's worked in you to will. So who is it responsible to apply myself to my salvation? (laughs) Mine or God's? Or could it be both? Guys, do you not think that God could fix things, order things, decree things, design things, plan things in such a way so as to not violate man's moral responsibility? Do you not think he could do that? Well, I couldn't do that, but I'm very unqualified for the job. Not only do I think he can, I think he has. I think that's the very thing that you're seeing there. Guys, um, uh, I hope to have a lot of these on hand. I don't have but one. And the first person that gets here with 11 bucks can have it. Maybe 12. I don't even know how much it is. I think it's around eight, but I'm going to pocket the other four. Um, I, I really don't, but um, uh, this is the, what I'm, show, what I'm talking to you about is, um, this is a, J.I. Packer, you've heard that name. He calls this an antinomy. Now, what is an antinomy? I want to read to you what Web, how Webster defines an antinomy uh, from this little book. What is an antinomy? The shorter Oxford Dictionary defines it as a contradiction between conclusions which seem equally logical, reasonable, or necessary. Um, for our purpose, however, this definition is not quite accurate. The opening words should read an appearance of a contradiction. You know, ladies and gentlemen, the reason that we're either-or thinkers is because um, we, we do are, are missing certain categories. And so, the, indeed, we do think either-or. So when it comes to do these two things that seem to be contradictory to us, we choose to maintain our either-or persuasion. And I'm telling you, they're both true. They're both in there, ladies and gentlemen. They're both in this book. In fact, you not only see them in this book, you not only see them in religious things, you see them in, for instance, light. You know, light appears to be, uh, sometimes show up in waves, and light uh, on, other time, on occasions appears to show up in, in, um, as particles. Those things seem contradictory. Those would be an apparent contradiction. Guys, um, um, God fixes things like he wants them to be. But he doesn't do that. Despite our choices, he does that through our choices. Our choices, even our choices, are a part of his, of his plan, of his sovereign plan. Now, I have one more to show you, and I say my favorite until last. It's in Acts chapter 2. This both and. Uh, guys, if you can't see it here, yeah, I've done a miserable job. Because this is, this is marvelous. Acts chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading at verse 22. Peter is speaking in that first Pentecostal sermon, or the sermon after Pentecost, and he says, Acts 2, 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Here we go. This Jesus delivered up According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Ladies and gentlemen, do you see what Peter has done there? He said, you people out there, you know, the Gentiles and the Romans and the Jews, 
you carried out the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. But in no way does that render your hands clean. You committed a lawless, wicked, evil act. What, what was that act? Oh, that act was the carrying out the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Ladies and gentlemen, Peter never slows down to explain it. He puts them side by side. Man, God's utter sovereignty and man's moral responsibility for their choices. And he never slows down to explain it. And very honestly, I really don't owe you an explanation. Peter didn't give us one. But I can tell you what Peter did. And I can tell you what Moses did and Ezekiel did and Jeremiah did and, and Solomon did. And um, Matthew did. They put both of these things side by side. It is not a matter of either or. It is a matter of both and. Gang, our choices matter. But they do not determine the future. And I, for one, I don't know about you, but I, for one, am so glad. Because, ladies and gentlemen, when you believe both of these things then that means you need not be either paralyzed nor passive. My, my, my point is, you don't need to be made robotic or passive by God's sovereignty. But nor do you need to be rendered paralyzed thinking that my choices are going to control the future and they may lead to ultimate disaster. Guys, do you ever know that, that little piece of poetry? I meant to bring it with me. I've got it in my files, but... I'm not even sure it's poetry. I don't even know what it is, but uh, I found it. I Googled it and found it. How about that? But the, the, um, it's about a battle between King Henry and King somebody else, and it, and it goes, for the one of the nail, the shoe was lost, and for the one of the shoe, the horse was lost, and before, for the one of the horse, the battle was lost. The, the point is, the whole history of mankind was determined by a, a um, what do they call those guys? Uh, a, a guy that forgot to put the nail in the shoe. So your choices change. My point is, guys, you don't have to be, you don't have to be frightened by the, of the future. And I'm, tell, I'm frightened by uh, your choices. You don't have to be paralyzed. I can't do that because I'm afraid of what it might be, lead to. No, you, you believe both of these, that your choices do indeed matter. Um, and, guys, we've got to do this pretty quick. Uh, Gail, would you help me? I've, I've put some on three of these tables. And, and, Eric, would you pass these things out? But... Um, uh, no, Jonathan, thank you. Okay, go get them. Um, I, I'd like, I just want you to see that what I'm saying is not my own concoction. Um, so if you've got, we've got five minutes and i got about five minutes worth, so stay with me. This is a quote that's taken from a book by D.A. Carson. Some of you may know the name D.A. Carson. He is a professor at Trinity Seminary right outside of, or in Deerfield, right outside of Chicago, um, the, the title of the book is How Long, O Lord, and I think it's on page 2, something or other. I can't, two, uh, 201. So if you, but my point is, I want you to, he says what I've said with a great deal more erudition, but notice what he says, guys. This is, this is what I'm trying to say to you. Number one, God is absolutely sovereign. But his sovereignty never functions in such a way that human responsibility is curtailed Minimized or mitigated? That's what I've been telling you. Now, he's going to say that same thing in number two, 
But he's going to start not with God's sovereignty. He's going to start with human responsibility. He's going to say that, but it, it, it amounts to the same thing. Are you ready? Human beings are morally responsible creatures. They significantly choose, rebel, obey, believe, defy, make decisions, and so forth. And they are rightly held account accountable for such actions. But this characteristic never functions so as to make God absolutely contingent. You know what that contingent means? That is, that God is responding to, oh, they chose that, oh, well, okay, i got to change things. No. So, your, your, your choices matter, but they don't make God absolutely contingent. God is sovereign, but His sovereignty in no way minimizes human responsibility. He calls that compatibilism. I call it by the name of the antinomy. You can call it what you like. Guys, understand this. The other two choices that you have, in terms of your theological position, the other two choices that you have are both either-or choices. The one choice that you have is Arminianism. That's one choice. The other choice, the other option you've got is hyper-Calvinism. Now, here's, here's what's happened, ladies and gentlemen, in these two options. These are, these are both either or. I'm giving you a both and. These are both. But Arminianism says, well, I can't, please, I can't put those two things together. I can't put God's sovereignty and man's moral responsibility. I can't, I can't put those together. And that just gives me a headache. And so I, I can't live like that. And so I'm going to have to get rid of one of them. And so what he does is he gets rid of God's sovereignty. This guy down here says, oh, I can't live with these two things. I can't figure them out. I can't justify them, reconcile them. I can't put them all together. And so this is just giving me a headache. So I have to get. So he gets rid of man's moral responsibility. It's either this or it's this. And I'm saying to you, it's both of them. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry that you've got tension. I'm sorry that you can't figure this out. I'm sorry that you can't reconcile them. But what would be a whole lot sadder is for you to decide, because of my tension, I'm going I'm to forget one of these things. Because that is to do a great violence to this book. Because this book doesn't teach either or. This book teaches both and. So, I'm sorry about your tension. But live with it. Because, guys, um, I, I've showed you eight places. I, can, I promise you I can show you another 20 where this both-and paradigm is there. Guys, for those of you who insist on maintaining your free will stance, may I say to you just, just a simple thing. Um, um, I want you to know that I am by no means saying that what you've been taught all of your life and what you've believed for so many years of your Christian experience is wrong. I'm not saying that. But here's what I am saying. I am saying that it's only half of the truth. You have been taught only half of the truth. And for me, that is terribly sad. That you, Some of you have been Christians for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. And have never heard this. I think that's tragic. That the only thing that you've heard about is man's moral responsibility. 
That's a shame. That's a shame, folks. I'm telling you. Um, I'm not saying that what you've held on to is wrong. I'm just saying it's a lot of picture. And having the half of the picture has produced some, I think, some evangelical uglinesses. And so I'll tell you what we ought to do. Since we've spent the first half of our Christian life emphasizing the moral responsibility, why don't we spend the next half of our life emphasizing God's sovereignty? And then when we die, we can have a little bit of balance. I'm really, I'm really not suggesting that, ladies and gentlemen. I'm really, because I, I want to suggest this. Why not believe them they're both there. Our Father, I pray that your people will benefit by uh, having to face and discuss some of these matters, and I pray that it'll, it'll prosper them, and that their whole idea of what this book contains might expand and grow and, and develop, and that they might discover that there's a whole new vista out there, uh, one that portrays you with all, um, all might, all power, all majesty, all glory, and that there is not a maverick molecule in this universe that is running harem and scarum, but that doesn't do your bidding. Father, thank you for the privilege of, of getting to teach this book and, um, and for the privilege of having it so that we might know you and what you're like. Might this go a long ways in that regard. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Thanks and good night.